If you've got your Bible, open it with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to continue in our study uh, this morning through the book of Philippians, just talking about the mind of Christ. And as we do so, I want you to think, think along these lines. Think, I want you to think about expectations. Anybody got expectations in their life? Yeah, we all have expectations. Uh, expectations for really every facet of life. It, it's a fact of life to have ex- expectations. When you sign a contract with a, uh, a builder or a, a loan, uh, like a bank, off, bank, so you're with a loan officer, or you're signing a contract with uh, the car dealership, you expect certain things based upon the agreement that you're making. Even so simple as ordering a pizza, as we did last night from a local place, uh, we ordered it online. It was the coolest. I don't usually do that in my house. Kara does that. And so this, last night was the first time for me to get online and order it from the website that was not necessarily a local website, but it connected to the local uh, place here. And we got to watch it be made, not necessarily literally being made, but we got to see the process and like where they are on the map. It was a cool deal. My kids really thought it was neat. They were glued to the computer screen. But here's the expectation when you order a pizza. You want it hot, right? And you want it within the time frame that they said. And so they said 39 to 45 minutes, and it showed up in about 33 minutes. It was amazing. Let's just say that. I was blown away as how fast they were able to cook it. I mean, I couldn't have took in frozen pizzas and cooked it as fast as they did, plus deliver it. So expectations are a fact of life. You know, as it pertains to Christianity... It's expected, think about this, it's expected that those who know God would act like God, right? I mean, the people around you in your circles, whether it's at work or at school, in your neighborhood, even here in the, in the local church, those who are around you who know that you claim to be a Christian, they expect that you who say you know God would act like God, that your life would bear witness of his character and his goodness and his mercy and his grace. This idea of expectations and what we would expect of others happens really in all arenas of life. Think about it. Sports teams will take on the character and personality of its coach. And so as Christians, we're to take on the character and personality of of our Lord and Savior. On a sports team, the team takes on the characteristics and the personality of the coach. In the business world, the business itself begins to take on the characteristics and the personality of the executive team. Every arena of life. Families will personify the nature of the father there in the home or the mother in the case of there not being a father. And so it shouldn't surprise us this morning as we think about this that Christians are expected to look like, to act like, and to even, if you will, smell like Jesus. Luke records an interesting parable in Luke chapter 10. We actually looked at this a few weeks ago in our small group time, but in this parable, we call it the Good Samaritan, Luke shares this story that Jesus told of three different men and how they responded to the needs of a man who had been robbed and left for dead. You know the story of the Good Samaritan, surely. Those three men, Jesus personifies there in this parable that he tells, and he talks about the first two being religious men. One's a priest and the other's a Levite. In other words, they're not just common Jews. These were uppity, uppity, elite religious leaders within the community of Israel. And so you would expect a Jew, but you would doubly expect a priest and a Levite, because they know God, to act like God. 
And we obviously would read this story, we would look at this parable, and we'd say, if God was walking down this road and he saw this man in the ditch being robbed, left for dead, God would go and help him. That's the point of Jesus telling the parable. But these men who are religious, who claim to know God, who are supposed to know God, act nothing like God. And then Jesus goes on, the third character that he shares is a Samaritan, a Jewish half-breed. The Jews would have looked at the Samaritan and said, this is a heretic, this is someone who is far from God. And yet the way Jesus tells the story, it's the Samaritan who comes over and binds up the wounds of this man. He puts him on his own donkey, takes him to a place, pays for his services, pays, pays for his hospital bill, if you will, and says, if there's anything else that's needed, I'll pay it when I return. Who acted and who smelled like the Lord in the story. It wasn't the religious people. It was the Jewish half-breed, the heretic who was an outcast in Israel. He is the one who most resembles the Lord. Well, like the good Samaritan, we should resemble our Lord. We should possess the mind of Christ, which is what the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about in this text that we're looking at this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, that we're going to read in, in just a moment. And so as we continue in this study of Philippians, I want you to remember what's going on here. Paul is writing from prison. Paul has been incarcerated. Paul is actually awaiting trial to stand before the emperor. The verdict is coming soon, and the verdict could literally be life or death. Will he continue to live? We talked about that in chapter 1 where he says to live is, is, or to, die, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's longing he's to go to heaven. He's longing to be with the Lord, but he's wrestling with that. And so the decision coming down before him as he stands before the emperor is a life and death decision. And yet rather than being overwhelmed and consumed by his circumstances, which, let's be honest, would be understandable, when you're standing on trial, you're there with your life hanging in the balance, it would be understandable that the circumstances of your life would overwhelm you, would consume your thoughts. But what does Paul show us? He's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's not concerned for himself, he's concerned for them. So he's writing to encourage the church. He's writing to call them to rejoice in the Lord, to find joy in all situations. Chapter 1, the message we see here is put Christ first in your life. In chapter 2, what we're seeing, and we looked at some of these verses in the middle of the chapter last Sunday on Easter, what we see here is put others next. And so in all of this, we see that Paul was never on the seat of importance in his life. It was Jesus and others. It was Jesus and other believers and lost people. Paul knows and he's concerned about the internal tensions within the church. We've already seen some glimpses of this with the robbery taking place in Rome. Some of that stuff was also playing it out in Philippi. We're also going to see at the end of the book that there's two ladies that are actually in contention with one another. And he's going to speak to that. So there's internal tensions while also this mounting external pressure coming upon the church. And so Paul writes to tell them, rejoice. Have joy in the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve other people. Don't worry about your situation. God is in control. So despite these difficulties, Paul has shown us here that the believers, these believers, should and can express the mind of Christ. You say, what is the mind of Christ? 
The mind of Christ is the attitude Christ exhibited. And we discover here that the mind of Christ is one of self-surrender to the will of God. It's also one of, of seeking to meet the needs of others. It's not being concerned with self, but being concerned about God and about other people. And so this morning, I want us to consider what this means for us. And as we do so, I believe we're going to be reminded that outlook determines outcome. And this is what I mean by that. If the outlook of our life is selfish, then the actions of our life will be divisive and destructive. James speaks of this in James chapter 4. He asks the questions, basically, where, where do the quarrels and the fights come among your life and in your relationships and within the church? Is it not because of the rivalries that you have? You're jealous of one another? And so if our outlook is internal, if it's self-focused, it's going to be divisive and destructive in how we act. But on the other hand, if the outlook is selfless, then the actions of our life will be unifying and constructive. And so I want us to see what Paul has to say about the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, they should be on the screen for you. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we look at this passage this morning, Paul is reminding us of your sacrifice. He's reminding us of how you lived selflessly in this world and through your life, how you went to the cross, how you kept perfect perspective between the Father uh, uh, demands upon sin and judgment upon sin, while at the same time keeping it within the bounds of grace and mercy so that humans, sinful humans, could be forgiven. And God, in all of that, we see your selflessness. We see your love. We see your goodness. We see an attitude that puts others first, that puts God in his rightful place. And Lord, this morning, we want to model that in our own lives. We want to have this attitude, this mind of Christ, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Give us ears to hear this morning and a heart to receive so that we can apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from this passage, what I want to do is to share with you three characteristics of this mind of Christ. Then I want to come back, and I want to give you five applications, if you will. How, how do we develop this in our lives? How do we develop this mindset, in other words, in our lives? So let's first of all talk about these three characteristics that we see in verses 2, 3, and 4. The first one is this. The mind of Christ possesses unity. The mind of Christ possesses unity. 
unity. You know, Paul opens this chapter, and obviously you know this, but uh, when the, Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it with chapter and verse, right? It was just a letter. It's like you would write a letter, and, and since then, the scholars and everything have broken it down with verses and chapters, and that's for our ability to quickly find places and, and reference things, but you need to read it as a letter. And so as Paul comes to this point in the letter, he, he's sharing here a series of if statements. Look what he says. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection, and any sympathy, we really could read these if statements more as since statements. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from love, since you have participation in the Spirit, since you have affection and sympathy. And so the if here refers to certainties. It doesn't refer to possibilities. These are certainties in the Christian life. So together, these motivations remind believers of the cords of love that bind together we as God's people. We have all experienced these, and we experience them together. And so the church here experiences encouragement in Christ because we as the church know and are found in him. We experience the love of Christ. We experience fellowship or partnership in the spirits. We experience tenderness and mercy or affection and sympathy. All of these are ours in Jesus. Aren't you grateful for that? That you have a partnership in, the, in Christ, in the Spirit of God, together with other believers. And so we're in response to these spiritual certainties. Paul calls for the church to possess unity. He goes on in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the church is to think and love in unity. The apostle understood then what we sometimes fail to understand today. You see, there's a difference between unity and uniformity. I don't think any of us today, especially that we live in America and we love our identity, we love our individualism, none of us want to buy into uniformity, right? Anybody want to wear the same thing as someone else? I've never liked wearing the same thing as someone else. Uh, I've never understood why Maybe some dads do, so I'm not, I want to make sure you, may, you understand I'm not picking on women, okay? It's dangerous to do this. I've never understood why my wife wanted to dress my daughters up in the same outfit, but that's what they do. I don't get it. I just say, looks great, babe. Let's move on, right? I like, I like having my own identity, if you will, in some ways. So we're not going to say, yeah, uniformity is what Paul is saying here. But more than that, it's what the Word of God is saying. Paul's not calling us to be uniform in the way we approach everything, but he is calling us to be unified in what we do. You see, true spiritual unity comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. We're unified because we have one Lord, right? We have one baptism. We have one gospel. We have one church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are unified in that, unified under that umbrella of Christ's lordship. Uniformity is something that is the result of pressure from without. You've got to look this way. You've got to do this certain things. There's always a list of do's and don'ts that's, that's attached to that. And, and sometimes those lists are good. Many times they're also bad. Paul's not calling for uniformity. He's calling for unity in the church. And as I've already said, there's some of that 
getting some cracks. There's some cracks beginning to, to form within the church, and he's speaking and calling them to unity. The beauty of the gospel working through the local church is that it seeks out and transforms people from all walks of life. You say, how could we be unified when we're so different? That's the beauty of the gospel. I want you to hear what the gospel does for us. The gospel is not concerned about the color of a person's skin. The church of the Lord Jesus is not a white church. It's not a black church. It's not a brown church. It's not tied to ethnicity. In fact, it's, I love how Revelation says it, that there's coming a day when people from all ethne will be gathered around the throne, all people groups. We all will be there speaking different languages, looking different, dressing different, but we will all with uniform voice declare the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church. That's the church. The sad thing that we tend to do is, is we segregate ourselves on Sunday morning. And I'm not here to say that we're doing anything bad. It's just the natural tendency of humanity that we would affiliate with those who are most like ourselves. And for whatever reason, we look at skin as one of those first things that we identify with. I don't know why we do it, but we should never look at a person's Skin color. I said last summer when we went through that cultural series that there is really only one race. It's the human race. And then there's multiple ethnicities that come out of that. But we all come from one daddy, Adam. So the gospel is not concerned with the color of a person's skin. The gospel also doesn't care about one's income level. The church is not for poor people. It's not for rich people. It's not for that big middle class. It's for everybody. The gospel is not concerned about educational background. It's not just for those who don't have an education or those who have PhDs. It has no concern about pedigree. It doesn't care of the family tree that you came from. The gospel doesn't care what political affiliation you have. Ooh, there's one you shouldn't touch in Powhatan. We're all <laughs> hardcore, red-blooded Republicans, right? I'm as red to the core when it comes to politics. But when it comes to the gospel, it's on both sides of the line, right? You're not going to get to heaven because you're a Trump follower. Ugh, that hurt, didn't it? <laughs> the gospel simply sees individuals as who they are, creatures created in the image of God. The, the gospel sees these Images of God, broken and flawed by sin, sees them in their condemnation, sees them in their sin, sees them in their separation from God the Father, and the gospel comes, the beautiful message of Jesus comes and offers redemption to them. That's what the gospel's there for. And so Paul's calling the church to be unified around that. Be unified in what we believe. Be unified in who we worship. Be unified in the beauties of the gospel and what it brings to our lives as believers. So Paul here, like a father, because he really is a father to this church, naturally is longing for it to be unified. And so what does he do in verse, verse 2? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Really what he's saying here is, hey man, I, I love you people, and nothing would do my heart more good and give me more joy than to see my children walking in unity. I don't want anybody to raise their hand, but if you've got adult children in here, for that matter, it doesn't matter if they're adults. Even young kids, when we have kids who are fighting with one another, who are at odds, not talking with one another, what does that do to our hearts as parents? It rips them apart. That's what Paul's leaning on here. This picture, this idea 
That he wants to see his children walking in unity, loving one another, walking in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So he requests like-mindedness. Thankfully, unity is possible because Jesus exemplified unity. Remember, we're talking about the mind of Christ. How can we be unified in our mind? Well, Jesus is our example. He's completely unified with the Father and the Son as he goes to the cross. We must never think that there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was so shaken that he literally was thinking about not going to the cross. I don't believe that ever went across his mind. He just understood the weight of what he was about to do. But he was never out of step with the Father and never out of step with the Spirit. The three, Father, Son, and Spirit, went to the cross together because that is what they came to do. Unity of mind. You say, I didn't know that the Father was there. Yeah, he turned his back on the Son. He turns back on the son who bore our sin. So the mind of Christ possesses unity. And the church who expresses this will not, will not be one known for petty squabbles, won't be one known for rivalries. Ever know a church known for squabbles and rivalries? Too often in the Baptist church. Instead, the church will be a church known for their identity in Christ, known for their common mission of the gospel. They, these are what unify us as a body of believers. Our doctrine, our faith, our position on Christ, and our common mission to take the gospel to the nations. But there's a second characteristic here in the mind of Christ, and that is the mind of Christ pursues humility. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, it's been said that humility is not thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. You don't even consider yourself. The pursuit of humility, though, is slippery, right? I mean, think about it. The person who says, man, I'm just, I'm humble. I'm a humble person. What do you know about that person? Eh, not so humble, right? You, the fact that you pointed out that you're so humble means that you're not very humble. I, I want you to hear a funny statement by this lady I came across this week, Helen Nielsen. She said of humility, humility is like underwear, essential but indecent if it shows. Come on, that's funny stuff right there. <laughs> I came across like, I've got to say that because it's just truth and funny at the same time. But that's what humility is. If you see it, you no longer want to see it because it's not really real. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this about humility. God created the world out of nothing, and so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. The virtue of humility was not a virtue in the Greek and Roman cultures that Paul's writing this letter from. The idea of being humble, the idea of humility was uh, on par with slavery. And so a person who's trying to move up maybe in that caste system, that class system there in those cultures would have said, I don't want to debase myself and seem to be going down the ladder. I want to do something that will make me go up the ladder. And so the idea of humility was something that was, that was foreign to the mindset of the culture of that day. And yet the New Testament elevated this characteristic as the soil of all virtue. You can't have other virtues unless there is first humility. Jesus, the sovereign Lord and creator of all things, came. Think about this. He didn't come to be served. What did he come to do? To serve. The high king of heaven came not to sit on a throne and be exalted. The high king of heaven came and was born in a, in a very elemental type of delivery stable. 
with no fanfare, any of that stuff going on. Thankfully, there's coming a day he will come with all of that in his glory. But the first time he came, he came to serve, not to be served. He veiled his divinity and he put on humanity that we see here in verses 6 through 8. So the mind of Christ pursues the humility modeled by the Lord. Again, back in chapter 1, Paul has already spoken of the preachers there in Rome who have heard of him being in prison on trial. And so now they're out of rivalry, speaking against Paul, preaching in a way that would, that would strike harm at Paul. He, so he's already mentioned this rivalry that has a tendency to take place in the church. And now he tells these folks in Philippi to avoid this sort of attitude. The reason for that is because rivalry will divide a congregation. Rivalry will destroy a congregation. It is a terrible thing for the church. And so every church member, every person who knows Jesus, everyone who's a part of a local body should beware of the danger and the presence of rivalry and always seek to put it to death. You say, where does rivalry show itself in our church? I don't think we've got uh, factions or various parties warring against each other. Thank God I don't know of any of that going on. But I do know the human heart, and you probably do as well, that there's a temptation there that when we see that someone may be elevated because God is using them a certain way or they're getting to do something, and maybe you've always wanted to do something like that, and so rather than rejoice in that, we're jealous of that. we got to beware of those possibilities. It seems like that was something that was beginning to take root in the church in Philippi. So what do we do? In response to that, we should seek the glory of Jesus instead of our own glory. We should rejoice when someone else is being used to advance the gospel and and seek to, to come alongside and help what is taking place there. See, there can and never will be unity in a church from the members apart from the members walking in unity. And Paul said something similar to this back to the church at Rome. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Flee from all things, in other words, that have semblance to arrogance. There's a third characteristic of this mind of Christ, and it is it practices sensitivity. Moving on into verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What is Paul saying here? I believe what he's doing is he's calling the church to live with sensitivity toward one another. Rather than being consumed about our lives, our agenda, things going on in in our families and, and all of that, we should have sensitivity. Our thoughts should be consumed with the interests of others. The trouble of others. That's hard to do. I mean, think about it. When you talk to other people, are you listening to what they have to say? I was having a conversation with a guy um, just a couple days ago in the, in the community here. Not a church member, not affiliated with our church at all. And uh, we're talking and um, like we're going back and forth and talking about yard work and stuff like that. And, and uh, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And so after a while, I'm kind of like, speaking underneath my breath like, this guy's impossible to talk to, right? He's not listening to anything I have to say. We're, I'm trying to have a dialogue here, and, and it's a monologue on his part, and what's going on? And it, it, was, it was uncomfortable conversation, but I wonder how many times when we're having that conversation with others, it's one-sided. Oh, we may listen, but we really don't care what the other person is saying because we don't care what's 
taking place in their lives. I think what Paul's calling for us here is, is sensitivity, that we would put others' needs and concerns above our own. Seems impossible to do in the age of selfies and can we get the most likes on a social media post? It's funny how we do that now, that we want to make sure that we get the likes. And so we get super, some of you are like, I don't even know what a social media post is. I wish I could live in your world. <laughs> Man, it would be so nice. Nate, I know you thought that song was ancient because it was written when you were like on a bottle last year. But uh, that song's not been around that long, brother. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm old enough to remember what it was like before social media and cell phones. And, and uh, uh, my daughters found an old Motorola flip phone that I used to use in the late 2000s. And they're like playing with it, my younger, younger daughters, the last couple days. And, and they had it in the truck this morning. We're on the way to the church. And in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, man, I would love to use that phone again be so much better to just not have to have all of this. But we live for the posts. We live for the likes. We live for the interaction and, the, and, and how that kind of feeds our ego. Paul's calling us here to live differently than that, to be humble in the way we approach, to be sensitive to the needs and the, and the things that are going on in the lives of the people around us. The practice of sensitivity toward others flows from a heart that is humble, never flow from an arrogant heart. It will never flow from a heart that is self-conscious, a heart that is self-consumed. It comes from a place that refuses to set self on the pedestal. And this is a great struggle. According to John Stott, that Scottish preacher that died several years ago, he says that at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility our greatest friend. Anybody struggle with pride in your life? Thanks, Mark, for confession. Everyone else will be raising their hands soon. We all struggle with pride. Man, it, it is devious. It, it's sneaky. It, it comes across in, in ways that, that looks good and smells good and, and seems righteous, but under the surface, man, it is wicked and as nasty as anything else. It's deceptive. Paul's calling the church to be humble, to follow and to walk in the manner and the model of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we develop the mind of Christ? We're going to see, I believe it's this next Sunday as we move on, we're going to uh, move to verse 12 because we looked at these latter verses last week on Easter. Well, as we get to verses 12 and 13, Paul instructs the church there in Philippi to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And that's always an interesting verse. I don't want to steal the thunder from next Sunday. But really, I believe what Paul's saying there is, is that we don't have to conjure up something it's already within us right the life of christ is hidden in us we are living in the life of christ we just got to work that stuff out we got to allow it to come to bubble up from the inside and to press itself out through our lives so we got to work it out and how do we do that let me give you five uh steps five application points if you will about how we can develop the mind of Christ. First thing we see here is it requires reflecting on the cross of Christ. Reflect on the cross of Christ. 
We must not miss that as soon as Paul gives these exhortations, he immediately takes us to the cross, right? Verses 1 through 4, um, have this, and then those build up to verse 5. Now, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be humble, be sensitive, um, uh, be unified. Have this mind. What does this mind look like? It looks like the cross, verse 6, 7, and 8, Right? That he humbled himself. He took the form of man. He went to the cross and he died. That's the mind of Christ. So if we want to develop this mindset in our life, we look to the cross. We look to the example of Jesus as the Son of God died on behalf of sinners. See, there's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. Anytime you begin to think that you're wonderful and awesome, just look to what it took Jesus to redeem you. It's there that we're confronted with the holiness of God. It's there that we're confronted with the sinfulness of man. It's also there that we're confronted with the grace of our Savior. Secondly, developing the mind of Christ requires reflecting on the glory of Christ. After describing the incarnation that we see in verses 6 through 8, right? Jesus comes, then he goes to the cross. Paul is directing us then to the exaltation. He, he, he comes, he goes to the cross, and then what does the Father do? Verse 9, 10, and 11, he gives him a name above every name. He gives him a name that at the the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we look there and we see, wow, Jesus is glorious. Wow, Jesus is wonderful. Wow, Jesus has been exalted. How was he exalted? It was because of his humility. It wasn't because he strutted before the Father and says, look what I did. Anytime we begin to exalt ourselves, destruction is following, right? Proverbs says pride, become, pride comes before a fall. Anytime you begin to think, I've got this under control, anytime you think, I'm wonderful, you better begin to look around for danger. So we allow his glory to create within us humble adoration for him. Thirdly, developing the mind of Christ requires reflecting on God's word. And God's word reveals Christ's humility as well as his exaltation. So it's playing on itself. So when we approach the Bible with the disposition of, Lord, I need to hear from you. Lord, I need to have a word from heaven more than I need breakfast this morning. That's when we're in a position where God can move in our lives. How many times do we get up and we go about our day and we never open God's word, which is what he's given to us to speak into our lives? That can't possibly say you're a humble person. That, that, what that's saying is, I don't really need God. I've got today handled. And this is what we do. This is the cycle we're on. You know, you read the book of Judges, and you've got the people of God are on this cycle. They rebel. They get punished. They cry out to God. He saves them. They do the thing again. Here's what we do every single, I wouldn't say every single day, but we have these cycles in our life, ongoing cycles. Here's what we do. Lord, I'm good today. Uh, I'm going to live my life. And and, and you do. You've got things under control, seemingly, right? You're you're progressing. You're making, you think, some some headway. And so life looks good. It feels good. And then things begin to get difficult. And you begin to move, hopefully, back to the Lord. And and you begin to pray more often. You begin to read your Bible. Maybe you're coming to church. And then things stabilize. And then you get back on this trajectory of you're not reading the Word. You're not praying. You're not being in fellowship with other believers. And 
And then what happens? Things get out of order, and you're right back down to where you were before. God, I need you. God, I need you in my life. And you're reading the Bible, and you get back in church. And this is never-ending cycle of your life. How many of you are sick of this cycle? What do you do? Humble yourselves. Seek the face of God. Stay in the Word of God. And you do all of that because you understand you cannot do it yourself. I'm an utter failure at being a good person. And so are you. I'm an utter failure of living the Christian life in my own power. I will royally mess it up. But if I will walk in step with the Spirit of God, if I will be in fellowship with my God, if I will be in fellowship with other believers, then I'm on the road to seeing God do some good things in my life. So we must meditate on God's Word, meditate on His greatness And work to live in obedience to that word. There's a fourth thing that I want you to see. Developing the mind of Christ requires prayer. Flows step in step with the word of God. I say it this way all the time that when it comes to your devotion life, uh, I tend, and probably I think most people do, to naturally gravitate to reading the Bible. It's easy. I can check it off the list. Uh, My brain thinks that way. Prayer is a greater struggle for me. But if you want to walk in step with the Lord, you can't walk in step with the Lord with a spiritual limp. So you need, you need equal amounts of Bible reading, Bible study, Bible meditating, and equal amounts of prayer. Otherwise, you're walking with one leg longer than the other. And if you've never tried that, try it sometime. You won't get anywhere very fast or very comfortably. So we want to be a person, a church of prayer. Here's what a prayerless life indicates. It indicates a prideful life. I mean, think about what prayer is. By design, prayer demands that we humble ourselves before God. What's the best posture of prayer? Probably on our knees. If not on our knees, on our face. By the very posture we, we put ourselves in, it's a posture of humility. You're bowing before a superior. Prayer demands that we humble ourselves before God. And it may seem that nothing is being done when we pray, but in reality, the most important thing is being accomplished. Sometimes people, in fact, I think it's dangerous to quote something when you, you just heard it in passing, but I want to say that our president this past week on the issue of gun control, said something to the effect of, we've prayed about this, but now we need to do something about it. And, and I'm, I'm, wanna sp- I'm not speaking to the gun issue. I've got convictions there, but this is not the time for that. But I just want to pull out what he said there and, and just parse it and put it on anything. Prayer isn't something we do until we do the work. It's been said that prayer is the work. And so when we come to prayer in our life, it may seem that we're not doing anything, but in reality, we're doing the most important thing. We're humbling ourselves before God. We're seeking his face. So in our pride and flesh, we want to do. We want to do things ourselves. And in doing so, we get the glory when things go well. Here's the flip side of that. When you do things in your own power and your own abilities, when things go awry, you get the shame. You carry the brunt of that. In either, in either phase, you lose. You're not created to carry things yourselves. You're not, carry, you're not created to do things in your own power. We're created to walk in step with God. And so prayer carves out our dependency on the Lord. It draws us closer to him. It helps us learn how to abide in Christ, and his life begins to be pressed out through ours. 
Prayer teaches us what Jesus said, that apart from him we can do nothing. I wonder how many times do we do ministry in our own power? I've thought about this quite a bit here in the recent days, is how many times in my own life do I stand up and do what I do in the, own, in the power of James Taylor? There's some things that we can do in our own power, and we can seem to do them very, very well. Because after all, we're professionals, right? We're, I've, been, I've been leading small group for 30 years. I, I can do this. I know how to study a text. I know how to outline it. I know how to teach it. I know how to bring application. I know how to develop the points. I know how to do all of that. The mechanics are there, right? We do this. Where's the Spirit of God in our ministry? Where is us leaning on him? Yes, you can teach, and, and yes, we can lean against that verse that says the word of God never returns void. Sure. God used a donkey to speak to a guy. I don't know that we want to be the donkey all the time. I'd rather be Elijah than a donkey. I'd rather walk in step with the Spirit. Prayer. Last thing. Developing a mind, the mind of Christ requires service to others. You see, when we put others' needs before our own and seek to serve them, we're on the road to developing the mind of Christ. Serving others deepens our humility. We begin to, to, to see people for how, who they are, and, and, and really in, in the sense of who God sees them or how he sees them. But when we think about service, it's costly. Ministry is messy. When you commit to serve the Lord, which means you're serving people, whether it's in the church, in the community, whatever that looks like, it's costly. Here's what's going to cost you. Time. Time's a hot commodity, right? Precious commodity in our lives. How many of you have enough time? No hands. Yeah, we're all running out of time. We all are needing more time. But ministry, service will cost you time. It will cost you in, in just the, the emotional drain of, of being involved with other people. I, I tell people all the time that when you get in ministry, you need some thick skin. Because there's going to be criticism that comes your way. There's going to be uh, questions that come your way. Why are we doing it this way? Why aren't we doing it that way? And if you're easily offended, you're going to have to get over yourself. There's an emotional drain when you begin to connect yourself with other people. But there's a blessing that comes from it as well. There's huge blessings that come from it. But there's another side of the messy side. When you begin to serve other people, you begin to learn, man, their life is a wreck. And you probably begin to look at your own life like, my life's kind of a wreck as well. I've begun to, I'm, I'm OCD about some things. Um, Y'all who know me closely probably know that. Uh, I like things to be in order. You walk in my office or this office that I have now. I got another one that we're trying to transition into. And it is like you dropped or you just kind of rolled, Harrison, a grenade in there and shut the door and it went off. And, and I walk into that and immediately it puts me in a different frame of mind. I'm like, Ugh, just on edge. It does something to me. And I, lately I've been driving into my driveway and, you know, weeds are growing everywhere. And it's like, it just does something to me. I walk in my garage and kids being playing out there and leaves are blowing in. And so it just does something to my mind. I like things to be clean and simple and neatly put away. And so it messes with me. When you begin to do ministry and you serve other people, you know what happens? You're walking in the weeds of life and it's messy. And you just got to know that going into it. You got to know going into it that you may be dealing with, like we've had to deal with over the last couple of years, families within the church who are going through divorce. 
terrible, terrible things. And you're walking with them, and you're listening to them, and you're trying to comfort them, you're trying to coach them, you're trying to encourage them. And all the while, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't listen. It's just messy. If you don't want any of that, then just stay in the pew, do nothing, and be miserable. But if you want a blessing from God, if you want to grow in the mind of Christ, take your hands out of your pockets and put them to the work. What does service look like? Or what does your service look like, better yet? Are you serving? Why do you serve? When we think about service, it's not because we're serving ourselves. Uh, we don't want to think of ourselves at all. In our service, there are two people that we need to have on our minds, Jesus and the person we're serving. Going back to expectations, it's expected that those who know God would look and act like God. The Lord expects his children to know his voice and to follow his commands. He expects us to look and to act and to smell like him. And our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, the people in our community, when they look and they hear about Red Lane Baptist Church, they expect us to resemble the Lord. That's why I've jokingly said many times that if you're doing something that's not right, please don't be wearing the shirt that Chris Cox is wearing or any of the others. It says Red Lane on it, right? I just happened to pick it out. Don't wear that name. Don't wear a shirt that has a cross on it. Try to just, I mean, if you're going to live sinful, don't associate with the Lord Jesus. Why? It's because the people around you expect you to look like Jesus. And we should look like Jesus. We want to have the mind of Christ. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, let me close up here. That clock's wrong. I love Acts chapter 11. You see a beautiful picture there. This is the church of Antioch, chapter 11, verse 26 specifically. If you know anything about that church, it's a church that commissioned Paul and Barnabas, or Saul at the time, and sent them out on the first missionary journey. But here's what the church in Antioch did. Those believers loved Jesus and identified with him in such a way that the people living in the city of Antioch looked at these disciples and said, you're so much like Jesus, you're little Christ. And so we're called Christians today because the church at Antioch recognized the look, the actions, and the smell of Jesus upon these brothers and sisters and says, you can't be anyone else but little Jesus is walking around. That ought to be indicative of our lives. That ought to be who we are and how we live our lives as a church today, let's work together to possess unity. Let's pursue humility. Let's practice sensitivity, looking to the needs of others above our own. Let's love one another, encourage one another. Let's challenge one another and serve one another. Think about what the, the Word of God says. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Let's allow our lives to sharpen our Christian identity so that we become more and more like our Savior. And we, as we do so, the world around us will benefit. The world around us will benefit because we will be better living out the gospel. They will see a better picture of Jesus. Our lifestyle will match our message. Some of you, me at times, skeptical to share our faith with someone else because we know they've probably not seen a good model of Jesus before we're opening our mouth. I pray that's never true as we go forward in our life. Never uh, applicable to our lives because our lifestyle matches our message. The message of the gospel is what changes a person's life. 